Hello, friends. We are back with episode 118 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. We're rolling along in the month of April, and for some of us, at least here on the state side, it's not the most pleasant time of year with a certain little uh, government requirement called taxes that we're dealing with, but we're going to have fun and avoid taxes for this episode. But of course, I can't have the fun without my great co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And like you, this is a very welcome break from uh, filing my taxes. <laughs> so looking forward to uh, nerding out here for a little bit. Yeah, we both need it. We were reminiscing in the pre-show, which um, yeah was a bit painful, but strength in numbers, as they say. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And um, yeah, we got a fantastic issue for episode 118 here. And our curator this week was Tony Elhabar, um, another uh, great contributor to our Art Weekly project. And he had tremendous help from our fellow Art Weekly team members and everyone like you around the world that's been sending their poll requests and recommendations to Art Weekly. So let's get right to it and we'll kick things off with a data-driven analysis of maybe answering the question of, why did I load that package? Now, I'll give a little personal story here first, is that I was looking for some older code that I did at the day job, and you know you're in a bit of a bind when you have a folder or directory and you call it sort, because you put some miscellaneous things there. Well, I had to dig into that for something, and then I found this script that was written eight years ago. So there'd be dragons already, as they say. And I'm looking at the list of packages I've loaded at the top of the script. It was a fairly basic analysis script. And you got what I, you might say, are the more popular packages up front, like ggplot2 for visualization. Maybe a little, um, in this case, it was plier for some data manipulation. This is before the tidyverse, so so if I couldn't date myself any worse. Good old plier. I know. Flashbacks, right? Yeah, that's yes. crazy. Um, and then I came across a package. Stop me if you've heard of this one before. The actual package was called ARG. No. Yeah, you wouldn't have heard about that, but I'll tell you why. Um, <laughs> now, first of all, a package called that? Why? Well, turns out, I did a little digging in this. This script was actually based off of an internal work training that we had many years ago. And the instructor, like what I would do sometimes for my previous trainings, he wrote a package to help with some of the functionality. Well, apparently he was so, you might say, perturbed or peeved that it was difficult to get this package deployed on our infrastructure at the time. He literally just named the package of how he felt. So there you go, folks. Naming packages can either be hard or really entertaining, depending on your perspective. That is fantastic. Yeah. If I ever see him again, I'll definitely remind him of that story. But uh, <laughs> now that's just my little uh, personal take there. But you might say, can we gleam a little insight into how others besides me could load packages into their analysis scripts? And just why are they loading certain packages? And then also, what I should have done at the time, at least in the pre and back then, is that if the package name is not exactly something that I would say is well known in my cognitive brain, I should have put a comment next to it. If I just, what the heck am I doing with this thing? Well, 
Luckily, this little question that I'm pondering has also been pondered by our author of our first highlight today, Luis or Louis uh, Aragosia, postdoctoral researcher at the Evolutionary Macroecology Lab in Mexico, for his latest blog post, where he also asks the question in the broader R community, why are people loading packages? Now, Louis has put some thought in this before because he has actually authored, get this, an R package called Annotator, which provides a few very useful RStudio add-ins and base functions to quickly add comments next to each library call in your script, which can give you the version of the package and also the high-level description that's parsed straight from the package's description file, assuming it is installed. Now that is pretty nifty off the bat. I'm already getting my money's worth of this highlight. But getting back to the original question at hand is just how are other members of the community, you know, annotating their library calls, if at all? Well, what's nice is that with platforms like GitHub, we get, you know, open access to many, and I dare say many, R scripts in the community. And apparently every week, there is a snapshot of the entire GitHub code base of repositories that's taken to Google's BigQuery platform, which you might say is a very, very large database service that with an API key, you could actually import into your R session via um, some R packages like uh, BigQuery. And so what Luis has done is he's cooked up a little regex to tap into one of these tables pertaining to the GitHub repository code and parse out all of the contents of R scripts, which of course end in .R, capital R undercase, and partition from those the library calls in these scripts. So just that in act of itself is not for the faint of heart. That takes a lot of um, data manipulation and, and like I said, a lot of regex kind of uh, magic, if you will. But once he was able to get this sample set parsed out, he was able to look at a few, you know, random samplings of these, looks like about 4,000 files that came through after his uh, filtering of what kind of comments people would put after their library calls. Some of these are pretty intuitive, like I need to do plots if you're loading grid extra or ggplot2, again, for plots. There's one I found kind of entertaining. You know, there is a meta package for the tidyverse appropriately called the tidyverse, which if you load that, you then get the namespace of all the, you know, might say core tidyverse packages into your session. Well, one of these comments was load dplyr tidyr stringr readr due to system doesn't work. Now that must have been a fun debugging exercise for that individual. But what's interesting is that Louis started to see some patterns from these comments. Most of the library call comments pertain to pipes. Now, where do we know the pipe very well? That's, of course, from the Magreeder package in the early days of the Tidyverse. And now, more recently, it's been built into BaseR with the base pipe. But, like me, I have a lot of legacy code, so I might be loading Magreeder sometimes on the spot if I'm only using that with some additional non-Tidyverse packages. But that was an interesting take on what um, 
was being used pretty common from a loading perspective. And then also there are some interesting additional samples of comments where they really specify what they're loading it for, which I think is very helpful, right? Because you might not know from a package name what functions are inside by just by the name alone. Now, some people get very creative with their names. You know, it can be catchy, but sometimes you as a analyst or a data scientist years down the road, you probably won't remember <laughs> what that package had unless you make a little note. So there are some tables in Luis's blog post where there's some interesting package names like Amelia apparently has a mismap function. I didn't know that, but hey, that's cool. But that's another nice way to kind of be nice to you, to yourself or future you with what you're loading into your, your session. And of course, with this comes opportunities to look at just what packages people are loading the most. And probably not surprising, the top three in one of his additional tables are ggplot2, dplyr, and plyr. There's a callback to just what I was mentioning earlier. There's still some plyr calls in, in the wild. So there's a lot more interesting nuggets here um, that you can peruse. And again, the code to get this uh, wrangling of the database contents into the code behind these R scripts is all in the blog post. Um, you'll definitely want to look at this a couple times because there is a lot going on here. But if you get yourself an API key with Google's BigQuery service, you'll be able to run this exact code in your R session because all of this is publicly available. So I think this is quite fascinating. And honestly, when I look back at my old code as I was digging up that script, I did realize that I did not annotate my library calls much at all. I'm trying to get better with it, but you know, practice makes perfect. Oh, I love super meta stuff like this, right? This is analyzing R code using R. <laughs> and one of the most interesting things that I found in the blog post was his analysis of the language that annotations were written in. It, he said that the vast majority of comments were written in English, but then followed uh, in order by Norwegian, Portuguese, French, Spanish, and Japanese. So I wonder how indicative this is of the number of users across each language that use R. I thought that was interesting. Um, so maybe Luis will, will expect that analysis uh, for the highlights next week. I'm just kidding. But uh, it, the, the fact that he was able to parse out the language from the comment um, was interesting to me in and of itself. And it looks like he actually used a function called detect underscore language from the CLD3 package which leverages Google's compact language detector, which is something that I didn't know about. I, I'm assuming that that maybe plays a part in, in Google Translate or, or some of the uh, other Google tools that are out there that deal with language. But I thought that that was an interesting package to, to have come across. And I could see myself probably at, at some point in time uh, needing that package. So you know, one thing that this blog made me sort of reflect on is how much or how often I comment my code. And, you know, for, for those folks that are on my team or, or those folks that I've collaborated with, they know that I do try to comment just about 
every chunk um, of logic in a script uh, that I will write. And that includes library calls at the top as, as well, just kind of a, a short description of, of why I'm importing that library. Um, hopefully just a few words. But I guess I was curious, Eric, do you have any sort of methodology or, or code standards within your team um, or expectations of how much, how often, or, or how little code gets commented? Yeah, I, I promise I'm not going to take the uh, easy way out of saying it depends, but we do try to adhere to a few standards here. I think when you, our team lot really creates a lot of packages and reusable functions um, for either our shiny apps or our, you know, packages or clinical designs. We often find that when we're using a package that's not as well known to our team, um, we try to comment almost every big step of the way. This has become really important for me, especially in the concept of visualizations with some packages I'm not as familiar with. Obviously, ggplot2, I think our team has done a nice job of mastering and we're pretty well-versed with how that goes. But then when you get to some more of the uh, fit-for-purpose, either JavaScript widget packages of HTML widgets or some of these others that do a more statistically you know, specific type of plot. We often do have to comment things like, why did we choose this parameter or why are we faceting here and things like that. So that that's important. Um, I think the bigger the bigger need we have is making sure that when we get people to review our code, that they understand the purpose of why we're doing analysis the way we are. You can say what a lot. It's very, in fact, I catch myself being quite verbose of like, I'm doing this to do X, Y, Z, but it's also why did I take this approach versus another one? That's something I try to be upfront about, but you know, it's hit or miss. But I think there's never, I'm one of the mindset that it's never a bad thing to do too much comments. I think future you will thank you I've said this many times, but I stand by it because there have been plenty of times where I didn't do a comment very well or, or a script with comments very well. And then I didn't think I'd have to go back to it years later. I thought it was just for a one-off and then I'd just file it somewhere and be done with it. But then when I get that question, I go back to it and I'm thinking to myself, you did what? What? And especially when things don't work anymore, that's when it really gets bad, but that's another story for another day. So I think with us, we, we comment very uh, rigorously, but we also want to make sure we use it to answer the why and not just the what. That's a great point uh, about calling out the why and not just the what. And I think that's maybe subconsciously something that, that I have tried to do as well. And, you know, we try to pull out functions and oxygenize them um, as much as possible, right? And usually in the details, I'll add a details tag in my Roxygen documentation above any custom function um, that, that we're pulling out. And that's where I usually try to handle talking about the why. You know, we're using this function and, and sort of how it fits into the overall workflow of the thing that it is that we're trying to accomplish. So um, that's a great point. Yeah, and I think it may not necessarily be for code comment scripting itself, but as you're doing a larger scale project that might involve multiple scripts or you're making a package or making a shiny app that's using multiple packages, the idea of what I'll call like a developer journal, it could be an R markdown document, could be quarter, whatever have you, 
just having that somewhere to capture your thoughts as you're building it will be very helpful to you because you might find yourself in a case where you're going to refactor that thing years down the road. And at least you know why you did it a few years ago. And then you update that journal with, okay, here's a new framework. This is why I'm doing it. This is fresh on my mind because I'm doing this right now of a huge shiny app where we did one way of doing interactive uh, diagramming. We're going to do a much more optimal way to do it this time and a much more fundamental shift in our development toolbox. So having that kind of developer guide along the way is, is quite helpful as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm glad you mentioned that point about Luis's post about, you know, the languages being used in these comments, because that's a perfect transition to our second highlight, because it goes about saying that through that little analysis, but also you just look at the broader community, that R does have a very big global presence in data science around the world. And many of us, even though you might say writing scripts is done English, it's certainly not the only language and certainly not the only way we communicate our results. So that's where our second highlight comes into play, where we're going to talk about the RTL package, which is for translating typical English style phrasing to what we call right to left languages. This has been authored by Matten Hekim, who is a policy data scientist at the Israeli Institute for Cultural Policy. And this is really a great case of taking what you can probably do yourself many times, but taking the, you might say, the repetitive nature out of it so that it's very easy to accomplish. And his example for motivating the package comes from you know, what we do typically in R, which is we're going to produce a visualization. We're going to annotate it with various things. Maybe we're going to change the axis label. We're going to change the title. One of Matten's uh, languages that he speaks and writes is Hebrew. And so what he wanted to do here was try to illustrate what happens if he writes for this simple bar part of the MT car set, the X axis to translate cylinders into the Hebrew representation. And that's all fine when you just have the word there. But what if you want to annotate it with, say, a year? Well, even though in his actual script, he is putting it in the right to left framework, the plot itself still puts the year ahead of the Hebrew label for cylinders. Now, that's not something he tried to circumvent that, right? Well, the way to get around it is where RTL comes in, where basically it is a wrapper to translate a phrase in these you know, right-to-left languages into a Unicode representation, which there is an actual slash U2028 or 202B, but it, good luck memorizing that, right? Unless you live a day-to-day. So he has a simple helper function called str underscore RTL, which will take that text and properly annotate it or put it in the right order for the visualization. And then the example shows that in the plot, he's got the year to the left and the Hebrew representation for cylinder on the right. So that in and of itself will get you where you need to get to to make sure your reports, especially your visualizations, are adhering to the way you are writing 
that annotation or that label. So again, fit for purpose package, but I think it's a huge step for the internationalization of making sure R plays equal footing across the different ways we communicate our results and communicate in general. So really great package. Again, does one thing and does it really well. And uh, kudos to making it out in the open for all of us to benefit from. Absolutely. And and this is something that's very easy to take for granted if it doesn't impact you on a day-to-day basis. And like you said, maybe, maybe this is like a little helper function that Matan had locally that he would have to load into pretty much every script that he was working on. Um, so it's nice to have an, an open source package wrapped around that helper function to make everybody's lives a little easier, right? No matter how small the lift is. And uh, he says that it was motivated by a stack over, overflow question from 2018, uh, which was interesting. And Matan is a, a native Hebrew speaker, which is a right to left language. And some other right to left languages he mentions are Arabic and Persian. So those were the three that he mentions um, in the in the blog post. And again, it's, it's, you know, as just someone who only speaks one language, English, it's very easy for me to, uh, to take that for granted. And he, he does say in his blog post, quote, uh, code is not meant to be written right to left. And I guess I would be interested to learn more about, you know, why that is necessarily the case. I thought just thought it was an interesting uh, quote from him. And, you know, like you said, he provides a great example using ggplot axis title below a bar chart where he, he tries to originally use a combination of Hebrew and the digits 2023 um, representing the year. And, you know, this seems obvious to me now, but, but another thing I didn't realize was that punctuation, like a period, um, would come at the left side of the sentence in an R to L, right to left language. Um, and like you said, that, that str underscore RTL function, which is sort of the main function exported from the package, allows you to pass a character string, um, you know, which would be some text in a right to left language and properly formats it. I think there's a couple different arguments that you can supply to it that that tell it about line breaks and things like that to handle you know, some of the other edge cases that you might run into where without this package, uh, the, the formatting of that annotation would, would look a little off. So uh, awesome job by Matan. This is a great blog post and a great package for folks who, um, you know, have to run into uh, using right to left languages in their R day-to-day work. Yeah. And I think this is, goes along, especially if you're writing a report that's going to be distributed to like a worldwide team and maybe you have collaborators in, in these uh, countries that do speak right to left or read right to left. So it's great to have alternative ways to, you know, make sure that they get treated as first class citizens of your report, you know, consumption, just as you would with, say, the native language you're speaking. So again, great credit to internationalization here. Yes, I think there's some tools that have been released. I'm thinking of them in a shiny context, but maybe they're they're not necessarily uh, just for shiny, but but tools that have been released within R to translate uh, what's displayed in visualization or in your shiny app or any sort of narrative or language that you have maybe in a markdown document as well between multiple languages. Am I I totally making that up, Eric? No, I think I recall Absalon actually authoring a shiny I-118N herb, I believe. We'll have a link in the show notes regardless. That's the one I think of right right away. Yeah, I wonder 
how far that extends if it extends all the way to right to left languages or not be interesting and maybe if not uh an opportunity to to leverage Matan's package here absolutely and certainly those of you in the community if you want to send your thoughts on that we'll tell you how to get in touch with us at the end of the episode for sure we love to we love to hear it well it's time to go full nerd i think eric all right, you're you've buckled up. I'm buckled up. I, I I knew this was coming, but um, you know, Mike, we're only in April of this year. It has gone by kind of quick, but to me, it's so cool to be watching. You know, advancements of amazing technology that's already impacting the world of data science, and especially those of us with R in data science. Now. Of course, a subject of many previous highlights have been the advancements in large language models via OpenAI's ChatGPT, and, and that's not slowing down anytime soon. But the other amazing revolution going on right now is running R in your local browser with WebR. We told you a few weeks ago we were going to be watching this space, and you know we're not the only ones. That's what I'm happy to say in this highlight. But one thing I've learned in all my years of being in the R community, we've already mentioned how dated I am in this, that when we've seen a huge advancement in tech or integrations be released to the wild and the open, there are always a few very enthusiastic early adopters that will take the baton, if you will, and both spread the word of it, but also share their real world use cases and their learnings along the way. And Bob Rudis has done just that, and frankly, much more in his ever growing collection of experiments with WebR. As we record today, Bob has authored 18 different demonstrations of using WebR, both on its own as well as integrations, which I'm going to touch on now. And this is a new frontier for many of us. Even though I, like you and I, have been using Shiny for years, but this is a whole different level, I think. And one thing about WebR is that it, it takes a little getting used to. In reading um, Bob's motivations via his regular newsletter, which is highly recommended if you're wanting to get some interesting tech content, he mentions that he wanted to carry out and author these WebR experiments to both learn for himself, but also pave the way for others to begin their journeys with WebR after he's already experienced, you might say, bumps in the road or other gotchas. And yes, I feel very seen about that because a lot of people look to my team to do that very thing for them at the day job to go through new frontiers and then tell them what works and what doesn't work and what we can do going forward. So. And so for this segment, there is no way I can talk about all 18 of these experiments with the time we have, but I want to look at this from the collection standpoint and some patterns and some interesting observations I've had in watching what Bob's been exploring here. First, I will say that the order that you yourself, the audience here, want to peruse these is important because you'll want to start from the very beginning. What Bob does is as you read the very first experiment, which is a very fit for purpose, but very clearly annotated example of using WebR in your web page, 
this is going to give you kind of the fundamental concepts that are used in the remaining experiments to build upon. Now, some of these are new to me. Some of these seem familiar from my, you know, use of R and Shining in particular, but some JavaScript concepts that will make your life easier as you begin your web R journey, such as asynchronous processes or async in the in JavaScript language, modules, hey, that's an area Mike and I are quite passionate about for sure, and also a nifty way to produce what I'm going to call self-made documentation in your JavaScript code itself. So again, we'll have links to a few of these experiments in the in the supplements if you want to look at it. But that first experiment, again, is kind of like your, your foundation that as you begin learning this, you'll want to refer back to, try it yourself, change a few things, see how WebR really plays with your browser kind of under the hood. But I think the value I'm seeing here is that WebR, much like R itself, is terrific on its own, but boy, you unlock a ton of potential with integrations. And this is what I'm going to talk about here. And before you even start to get to those integrations, I do want to take a bit of a, a minute here to plug some amazing resources. If you come from learning R primarily, and you want to know kind of some basic fundamentals of JavaScript, I'm going to plug three great resources. We'll have link in the notes as well. John Cohen's JavaScript for R, amazing, amazing book to get you started on that journey. And even though this is about Shiny, I think David Grandjian's Outstanding User Interfaces with Shiny has some great descriptions of JavaScript fundamentals that are very helpful for you, as well as um, JavaScript for Data Science by Maya Gans, Toby Hodges, and Greg Wilson. Those are all terrific books that you can get, I believe, for free as well to up your up your basic knowledge of JavaScript because that will be, again, quite helpful here. So again, talking about integrations, this is where you start to see some real potential of WebR uh, shine here. No pun intended. <laughs> but speaking of, if you like your idea of having reactivity like what Shiny brings you, but in the WebR context, Bob has an experiment of integrating WebR with what's called the lit JavaScript library that gives you basically reactive like web components so that you could have, say, a bar chart or a visualization with a dropdown that changes like a variable that's being surfaced all on the client side. Pretty nifty, takes a little bit of getting used to, but I think he articulates it quite well in his experiment on that. And also, if you're in the data science world, you probably have one time or another done an analysis in both R and Python or hop back and forth. Well, there's another experiment where it combines WebR with Pyodide, which is kind of like Python's WebR equivalent, albeit more farther along, such that you can actually install packages pretty easily in Pyodide, which is being worked on actively on the WebR side. Where Got, got a few uh, hurdles to jump on that one, as we've talked about before. But that experiment is a great way for you to pass data from R to Python to do a visualization via, say, matplotlib, but showing how you can hand that those objects off between the two different WebAssembly frameworks, which is pretty mind-blowing in and of itself. 
Another thing that Mike and I have been big fans on in previous episodes is Quarto, right? And Quarto has uh, has built-in integrations with Observable JS to do some client-side interactivity. Well, guess what? You can have Observable with WebR as well. So there's quite a few experiments that Bob has authored where he ties WebR with some visualizations powered by Observable. So again, get that client-side interactivity, no Shiny involved, no server outside somewhere involved to make it all happen. And Observable is not just limited to visualizations. This one is more recent, but it really got my head going. Where if you like your database queries and you've been a fan of utilities like DuckDB, you can use Observable with DuckDB and hand that off to a visualization. That's crazy to me. I, I, I can't believe that's even possible. But, but wait, there's more. In Bob's recent experiments, and I mean really recent as of this recording, Bob has somehow, well, actually, you, you can see how he did it, created a REPL, basically an execution environment of R in your web browser. So he has an R script that has a basic function or a plot. You run that just like you would in any IDE. And in the right side, you're going to get the R console output and an image or visualization. Oh my goodness, can you imagine the potential on this? <laughs> a REPL in your browser. And this isn't using VS Code, folks. This isn't the, using an R runtime under like your computer itself. It's all in the web browser. As you can tell, I am very fascinated by this. It is still early. So these web experiments, I admit, as I've been following along, I have to read them a few times to really grok kind of the nuts and bolts of how they work. But this, I feel like the materials here could make a wonderful book someday of how all this works. Perhaps that's where Bob's going. I have no idea. I haven't talked to him, but you've you've got it. You you found yourself a great a great niche here, and we're all very curious where where WebR goes going forward. And like I said, I'm watching this space quite closely. So there's a lot to lot to digest, but I think it's fascinating nonetheless. So Mike, what have you been uh, <laughs> what have you been uh, taking away from all this? I am in the same boat. This is like the most, but wait, there's more you know, blog that I've ever seen. It's it's like Christmas for data scientists. Um, the the REPL is by far the coolest thing. It, it's so similar to the RStudio IDE experience in, in that uh, there's a scripting pane from which you can highlight and run code. There's a console, which is non-interactive, um, but, but it will return any code that you've run. There is even a plot window that will display any plots that you've run, an environment pane that shows the objects that you've created. That is one of the, like, I don't know, biggest features, right, of our studio. That's sort of one of the things that makes the IDE as popular as it is. And Bob's found a way to replicate this right in the in the, the browser and a file system pane as well to show you what files exist uh, in your in your local environment there. And there's even some nice autocomplete features that, that seem to look and behave identically to the experience of writing R in VS Code. I think Bob says this himself, that they're a little finicky. Like uh, sometimes the autocomplete will show up for some functions and it it just won't for some other functions. Um, but I was able to uh, obviously stay up a little too late last night playing around with this. <laughs> and, you know, uh, the GLM function will autocomplete and the the arguments to that function will, will autocomplete as well. 
Um, really, really cool. You can install packages from our universe with this function that I believe Bob has authored for us called install.runiverse. And you just pass it the package name there. Um, and then I was taking a look at some of his, his other blogs, you know, not to just call out the, the one that, that is the REPL, um, but there's one that I think that you were just talking about. It's called an R template tag function, um, which allows you to leverage um, Pyodide, I believe, and, and WebR working together. Um, but this, this might even actually extend beyond that. Uh, so it'll use eval r and 2js that, that's the, the way that he authors this. this is a little above my head um that's what will apply to the code between the template string that that you pass and uh it, this allows you to open up the dev tools pane in the browser i think uh bob has actually installed um some some libraries once you run into that console in in dev tools in your browser there's a few packages that load but it allows you to to open up that dev tools pane in your browser navigate to the console there and run our code um, just prefixing await r and then essentially paste your 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 r code in there and it'll return the answer right in that console i believe it's it's passing around some code between python and r there because the output looks, looks a little more pythonic than it does look uh r if you will but uh it's it's mind-blowing it's it's really my, all this stuff is so mind-blowing and, and i guess a little peek behind the curtain i don't think this is too much to share but for our workshop at posit uh this this year in chicago we had recently been asked about some uh, eric and i had been asked about you know what needs we might need for for infrastructure for folks that aren't able to you know install local packages just because you know the laptop that they're using has uh, you know really strict firewalls or, or or something like that that there's some conflicts that run up so right there's there's uh, tools like uh, Posit Cloud I guess it's probably been renamed to as well and it's it's hard to for me it's kind of hard to even answer that question right now because who knows what the landscape is going to look like in September, right? Come composite conflict. This stuff could all be, um, I guess, light years ahead of, of where it is now. And we could have tools that we don't even know about that just allow us to, to author our code in our browser much more easily, right? Install packages um, much more easily. That's probably the next big set of advancements that, that will hit us. So uh, it's, it's, it's just a really fun time. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think about just how far it's come already. And and we know that WebR has been worked on quite a bit before the initial public release earlier this year. But even just since then, we're seeing these yeah. different explorations. And, you know, the the more the more fundamental issues that are being actively addressed, we're, we're seeing multiple takes on this. And in fact, we even, I think it was you or I that touched on this a couple of weeks ago about, hey, you know, maybe that our universe could have some interaction. And lo and behold, Kent Russell and Bob Rudis are exploring that very thing with your own ooms about how maybe our universe can help, at least in the short term, with getting more efficient package installations, because that is the biggest hurdle I see at the moment. And the other thing that I'm going to try to play with a bit is, in my industry, things like reproducibility um, in integrity of environments is huge for us. This looks a lot different, at least under the coding hood, 
compared to what we might do for a typical shiny app or a typical analysis that we would submit to an agency. So we are still way early in this journey, but I'm very interested to see that, okay, if we run this on the client side and we have everything bundled together, how do we distribute that effectively? You can't always rely on CDNs out in the wild, especially in constrained environments. So I am interested to see how we can have kind of the benefits of organizing your R code of this in the way that we're used to organizing it with sending it to the runtimes that WebR is going to be exposing for the user and a way that we can encapsulate that bundle, whatever the proper term is, in an easier way for sharing and collaboration. I think that's where my eyes are going as well from like my, my I might say my work hat, but my geek hat is saying, oh, let's, let's try all this stuff out and see what sticks. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It must be nice that the Pyodide project has, has sort of maybe paved the way for some of the hurdles and, and maybe the, the WebR team folks were able to, to learn from what's worked well there and, and what hasn't worked well, right? You talk about in terms of um, their package installation uh, up in the browser being a little more mature than what we have in WebR. And I can only imagine that they ran into some hurdles along the way developing that. You bet. And I've, I've heard through the, you might say, grapevine that Winston and others on the Shiny team are looking at ways of making this more efficient from a reproducibility standpoint and sharing for, you know, one of the use cases you can think of, even if you step outside my industry and just look at, you know, manuscript authoring as a whole is a lot of times we might say for a journal, oh, here's the code that we use to generate those plots or those tables. But it's not really, it's still up to you as the reader to bootstrap the environment to run that stuff, right? Well, what if there's a way to like ship this JavaScript runtime as a way to download and then automatically unpack on your computer and run it in a self-contained way? Think of it as like a container, but not really a container. I think this is an exciting time to watch. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I know we're getting very close to a conversation on Docker. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna pull back a little bit because we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. <laughs> In fact, I'll be looking at that quite closely for a pilot with the FDA soon, but I'll have awesome. more to share later. But there's a lot more to share in this issue that we can't cover all of it in this episode, but we, of course, have linked to the full issue, but we're going to take a couple minutes to talk about our additional finds today. And for me, it's another case of we have these different services, but how can you tie them together to bring efficiency and automation to a workflow to make your, in this case, teaching life easier? Well, OpenScapes recently had a community call with Dr. Sean Cross, who's been a very prominent member of the R community for many years on his Kyber R package, which is a way that he has set up GitHub learning cohorts via Google Sheets, integrated with R Markdown and Google Docs, and compiled to GitHub pages and websites. This is an intriguing setup. I think it's great for those in the education sector that want to take advantage of as least amount of manual effort, but to get a template structure going for maybe a class or, or a workshop or whatever have you. I'm going to be looking at that more closely and watching the recording of that because it sounds like a lot of fun tying all the bits together that I typically use on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, Mike, what did you find? 
That's a great find. I just I just popped it open right now, and it looks like I know what I'm going to be doing after after the, the show ends. That's really cool. I found a, a blog post by Tanya Shapiro uh, on the English Premier League, and it's it's this really cool interactive, I believe, GGIRAF plot um, that sort of shows the transitions in standings from last year to this year between all of the English Premier League soccer teams uh, or football, if you are a true, a true, uh, true footy head like myself. <laughs> and um, she has a couple of great interactive uh, plots and tables uh, in this particular blog post. And I believe that she just finished migrating uh, her blog from uh, whatever it was previously to Quarto. And uh, so th- that was really cool to see on, on Twitter. And it came out the entire, her, her entire uh, blog site came out, came out beautifully, but this was a really cool blog for me to check out. So I'd highly recommend uh, folks check it out as well. Yeah. Another win for GGI ref, man, that is quite a package that's causing a lot of great capabilities or producing a lot of great integrations with ggplot to, to, make interaction uh, available. So I'm definitely going to be playing with that more. Yeah, interactive, the ability to embed the logo of each team um, in in the chart. It's it's really incredible. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, you, there's so much we could geek out on. Why can't we have like 48 hours in a day? It's not fair. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. Oh, but yes, but at least with the time you do have, you can look at this and many of the other stories that we have at our weekly. We have the link to this week's issue in the show notes. And of course, we love getting contributions from all of you for our future issues, where if you find a great blog post, maybe another interactive visualization like Tanya's or some more great experiments with WebR, whatever have you. We would love to hear about it where you can send a poll request to the R Weekly GitHub uh, page for the draft. And it's all marked down all the time. So very easy to get up and running. And our curator of the week will review and merge it in. So we love getting those contributions. And of course, we love hearing from you. We have a contact page right in the show notes if you want to give us feedback on what you heard about today or any of the previous episodes. And if you grab yourself one of those fancy modern podcast apps completely free like fountain or podverse you can send us a little boost right in the app itself if you want to give us a little shout out as well details on how you get set up with that quite easily are in the show notes as well and we love hearing from you on social media i am still sporadically on twitter with at the rcast but i am also on mastodon at our podcast at podcastindex.social Mike, where can the listeners find you? Likewise on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Very nice. And we'll have, I'm sure, lots more to talk about as this year goes on. We got a lot going on in the community. And yes, uh, Mike and I have a workshop to build too. So you might hear some little tidbits about that too. (laughs) For sure. Awesome. Well, we're going to close up shop here on episode 118, but we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week.